Well, good morning. Kids are already dismissed. And uh, welcome to the annual gathering of those of us who don't have cabins. (laughs) Or uh, those of us who were a little bit over the top last year and didn't get invited back. It's, um, it's a real privilege uh, to be here. And not only to open God's word with you, but to hopefully encourage you. Uh, Melody and I uh, do work with an organization called Hope for the Hurting Home. And um, Terry, your church, as well as a number of churches in the area, are beginning to, uh, to think about having people in your church trained. In the last 18 months, we've trained over 120 people in the Twin Cities area. And over the last four years, we have worked with about 90 couples. During the three and a half years I was at Maple Grove pioneering this approach, we worked with 61 couples at risk of divorce. 49 of those couples pulled back from the divorce decision and decided to give their marriage another try. And um, that is really, really encouraging. It's really, really encouraging in a day and an age when... um, it's really easy to lose hope. Really easy to lose hope. I'm excited about your, um, your Common Ground uh, series. It reminded me of a verse in First Chronicles 12.32 where the tribe of Issachar was described as those who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They had this sense about them, and your main text is in Acts 17, where Paul is trying to find common ground in order to present an uncommon gospel. And so what a great thing, Uh, what a great thing for you to be embracing that. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take uh, not so much a a people group, but we're going to take a, a worldview, a cultural view of how contemporary marriage is viewed and lived out. And we're going to take two of those expressions and we're going to look at the positive and then we're going to look at some of the challenges and especially as they relate to how we in the body of Christ have adopted those challenges in our own marriages. We're going to ask where do we agree, what's good, what's helpful in the culture because we want to avoid the, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Christians can sometimes be weird birds. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we'll swing all the way over on one side of the pendulum and we will swallow and adopt everything the culture has to offer and all of the opinions of the culture, sometimes because we don't want to be disapproved by people who don't share our faith, sometimes because we've grown lazy in our faith, and we are unwilling to do the hard work of reading the scripture and building bridges and finding out where we have common ground with people and working to love them and build a bridge over which a redemptive conversation and the weight of truth, as you have put it on your advertising, needs to travel. And then we swing all the way over to those who just you know, this is the way our church has always done it. This is what I've always believed. And there's something about standing on the firm doctrines of Scripture, but sometimes Christians can go all the way over on this side, and we actually never grow intellectually or spiritually. We just rearrange our prejudices. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push some buttons this morning, if that's okay. 
you don't have to invite me back. And so that's, you know, that's my, that's my kind of safety zone. You know, I can kind of high five you on the way out. Let me just make this or high five you as you escort me out. Because we're going to talk about marriage, let me just kind of preface this. Because I spend so much time with both Christian and non-Christian couples that are struggling with this decision, do I stay in my marriage? There are many of us who have gone through the pain of seasons of our marriage where we wanted to give up. Mel and I have been married 40 years this October. We say without hesitation, it's been the 30 happiest years of our life. Some of you have gone through the pain of divorce. And so nothing that I'm going to say to you this morning or, or, or bring from God's word is meant in any way to discourage you or to make you feel badly. You cannot change the past, but let me encourage you. You and I are living in a day and age when we need to stand on the truth of what biblical marriage is. And wherever we are in our journey and our family, we need to live it out. Because increasingly, we live in a world that basically believes more and more and more that two things don't matter in our world. One, gender doesn't matter. Male and female is just interchangeable. And marriage doesn't matter. The one thing we want to avoid is to use a secular model for a spiritual relationship. You know, all of us come into marriage with a model with a picture of what married life should be. It's conditioned by our parents, our faith backgrounds, our own personal needs. Have you ever just stopped and thought about this? Why did you get married if you're married? What were you looking for in your marriage relationship? You know, some of you believe in love at first sight, which I personally don't believe in love at first sight. You may have loved the first sight, but that's something else. But we also live in a society that also has a picture of marriage and we live in a culture of self-fulfillment and the secular model of marriage today that oftentimes influences our expectations and our picture of what it means to be married is really all about the wow factor. You know, drop dead gorgeous needs to meet hunk a hunk a burn in love and they live happily ever after for about five years. Well, this secular viewpoint has given rise to what we might call the consumer marriage. And you might remember, in the, if you study sociology in the 1990s, you, um, you know that there was this rise of the consumer. In other words, the pushback on the corporations, and now I'm going to get what I paid for. Um, I am really the center. The customer is always right. This, by the way, is the reason that you go into Best Buy with your iPad Uh, checking the things online because there's very little, if you're a retailer, you know what I'm talking about. There's very little brand loyalty anymore, right? There's also very little work loyalty. You know, it used to be you could work for uh, Alliant Tech or you could work for Honeywell or you could work for IBM. You could start in the mail room and be there all of your life and maybe have a corner office someday. But now corporations and people who work for them, they always have their antenna out. They're always looking. They always have their resume out. Well, this is filtered down into the way that we actually view marriage. Now, there's some positive, um, there's really some positive aspects to the consumer marriage. And let me me just share them so that we we want to be balanced. I, I just labeled it intentionality. 
You know, with dating services, um, regardless of what you think about dating services, part of what's behind that is a desire for people to say, if two people are going to get married, we need to do a better job at trying to find a match, right? That's why you've got match.com. That's why you've got all of the dating sites that say, we do a better job of matching up two people. Well, that intentionality is good rather than, as one author called it, just wandering toward the altar. Here's a second thing that I think is, um, is possibly um, a positive outcome. People are waiting longer to get married. Now, sometimes they're waiting longer because of a lack of commitment. Sometimes they're waiting longer because they have a view that says, I need to get my life set up. Um, those who say, I just need to grow up a little bit, that's a good thing, right? How many of you have been married to someone who just needed an extra five or six years to grow up? Would have made things incredibly easier. But the consumer marriage also has some downsides, some negative consequences. And I just labeled that um, kind of a stark individuality. Sociologists use terms today like the me marriage. Marriage primarily is about my needs. It's about me. It's about whether I feel good in this relationship. We also use words like starter marriages. This is an interesting thing that sociologists borrowed from the real estate industry. What's a starter home? A starter home, it's too small. It's what I can afford now. I'm not going to put much into it because I'm not going to be here long. It's a good place to start. One um, New York Times columnist was at a, at a wedding gala and overheard a conversation where someone had said right after the ceremony, well, she'll make a good first wife for David. Consumer marriages, one sociologist wrote, They are most common among Gen X. They last less than five years, produce no children, marry later than their parents, but their divorce rate is identical to their parents. This, by the way, and this is where you'll probably hate me, and it's okay. Um, It's not okay that you hate me. It's just hopefully you'll, you know, we, we do this a lot at Maple Grove, this umbrella of grace, okay? I may not agree with pastor, but I won't send him a nasty email. This really is behind the bachelor and the bachelorette, if you're honest. If you're honest. I mean, who seriously, thinking seriously about a lifelong commitment, goes on national television to beg for someone to pick them? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? The desperation, actually the demeaning of a person... One person gets to look over the whole flock and say, you're the best, I pick you. But every one of those people is on national television saying, but I'm the best, but I'm the best, but I'm the best. This desperate thing to have either my spouse is exactly what I want and what I need, or I can't be okay unless someone finds me exactly what they want and exactly what they need. That's the consumer marriage. Dr. Bill Doherty at the University of Minnesota said, the chief value of the consumer marriage is making sure that one's needs are met and that one's options are always open. We still believe in commitment, but powerful voices coming from the inside and outside are telling us that we are suckers if we settle for less than we think we need and deserve in our marriages. 
As one husband said to me, I don't want a wife who doesn't want my life. You know that little phrase, mi casa, you casa? You know, my house is your house? Well, the consumer marriage version of that is, my baggage is your baggage. My bad habits, my friends, my family from hell, my debt. You get the wonderful privilege of marrying into that, and you need to be okay with that. Because that's what I need. That's what I need. This is also why we glamorize irresponsible behavior in our marketing and our advertising. I'm I'm waiting for the advertisement where a dating site has this little thing on the bottom. All the beer commercials have the thing on the bottom. You drink responsibly. Why don't the dating sites put a little disclaimer down at the bottom and say, marry responsibly? It's because in the consumer marriage, you don't think about that. You think I can get married without having to grow up. You think I can get married without having to change. In the consumer marriage, if we're really honest, what a person says when times get hard is I either want to change in my spouse or I want to change of my spouse. But there isn't much thought to saying, what is really marriage for? What about the changes in you? This is also, by the way, the weakness of cohabitation. 50% of the couples in our country cohabit. And here's what's interesting. Uh, And this wasn't done by a pastor. There was a study done in Louisiana, secular study. Took two groups of couples that practiced cohabitation before they got married. One group went into a mainline denomination. The other group that talked basically about, you know, good marriage, but it's sort of, you know, um, what we would call contractual. The other group went into very strong evangelical churches that preached and taught covenant marriage for a lifetime. Their divorce rate after five years is identical. Why? Because there is something in cohabitation that innately weakens the bond and works against why you did it in the first place. The guys are thinking, I want to see if this will work out and if I can be okay with this. The gal is thinking, I want to show him he can be okay with this. The woman is looking for dependability. The guy is looking for flexibility. As one writer put it, marriage is really our last best chance to grow up. So what's marriage really for? Why did God give it to us in the first place? Author Tim Keller in his New York Times bestselling book, The Meaning of Marriage, said this. said, most of our marriages fail because we do not understand and do not accept the reason why God gave us marriage in the first place. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? I love this quote, but it's true. You always marry the wrong person. Always. You always marry the wrong person. Just let that settle in. Some of you are going, okay, I needed that this morning. We are now leaving to go have a wonderful 4th of July Sunday with the family, and I'm driving with the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person because... There is no soulmate. That's a myth of our culture. 
Soulmates are not discovered. They are developed over a lifetime of faithfulness and love and commitment and sacrifice. So, and I know Neil Clark Warren means well, but this is what really irks me. He's a Christian. He ought to know better. And now I'm really going to get letters from Oprah. When they say we have helped more Christian couples find their perfect soulmate, it's not true. It's not true. All you know at the end of match.com is that you've got a match. And if you're honest, and match is good. I'm not saying you should go out and find the ugliest, hardest person to live with that never takes a shower and go, well, this must be God's will for me. All I'm saying is this. The myth of the soulmate feeds into the cultural narrative that says you deserve a 10. And so when your spouse happens to not be a 10, you begin to think, and I I can't tell you how many times I hear this from Christian couples. um, I should have never married you. I was out of God's will when I did it. I, I just, I was lonely. I should have never married you. And now I need to divorce because I need to get back into God's will. You're just not my soulmate. Do you know why God's given us marriage? It's so that God can use the person that you choose to be married to and their sinfulness and their rough edges Not for you to change them, but for that person through the highs and lows, the ups and downs of marriage with an imperfect person who is not perfect for you. For your response to that to cause you to change and become more Christ-like. And I'll show you this from Scripture because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Write this down somewhere. Marriage is not about finding the right person. It's about being the right person. Now, little context. The, um, most of you know that Paul, this is kind of a a big passage, you know, on marriage. Um, Paul really believes uh, Christ was coming in his lifetime. There's a lot of urgency in this passage. And so he's bombarded with all these questions about marital intimacy and who should be married and divorce and and uh, what do you do? You know, um, people were coming to Christ and then now they have a spouse that's not married and they're coming to Paul saying, Paul, they won't come with me to church. Can I dump the turkey? And, and Paul says, no, if they're willing to stay with you, what's my responsibility? If I've married someone who's not a believer or if one of us has come to faith, I'm to stay in that relationship. Why? Because I'm the sanctifying influence in that relationship. And so then Paul talks about, you know, is it wise to get married? And, you know, given the fact that Christ might come. So the widows, the young widows come to Paul, end of the passage. And they kind of raise their hand. They go, Paul, um, we we get that whole thing about, um, you know, being single and serving the Lord and stuff. And, you know, we're willing to do that. But, you know, Paul, if, if the right person comes along, if our soulmate comes along, Paul, is it okay for us to get remarried because our spouse has died. And here's what Paul says. He says, and this is true of men, but he's just talking to the ladies. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. He's affirming what the gals are saying. Our husbands have died. Now what do we do? Especially if, you know, hunk a hunk of burning love comes. You know, he's, he's in my Bible study. What do I do? But if her husband dies... She is free to marry, underline it, say it with me, 
Oh, with more conviction, people. Say it with me. She is free to marry what? Anyone. Paul, where is the instruction about going and praying and fasting? Because there's only one person that you could be married to in God's will. I got in trouble at a marriage conference because some people, you know, I get this. If you believe, if you believe, I found the absolute, God only has one person for me to marry. That's okay. I want to know what you want to do with this passage because when Paul gives instruction to people who are wondering, what about hunk of hunk of burning love? He doesn't tell them to go out and pray and fast because there's only one person. Here's what he says. Marry anyone you want. Any old sinner will do. For God's purposes in marriage of making you like Christ. Why? Marriage is a wonderful but a temporary relationship. What Paul says next is the most important thing. Anyone you want, but what? He must, say it with me, belong to the Lord. He must belong to the Lord. See, society, consumer marriage is all about the wow factor. Anyone I wish. But Christian marriage, spiritual unions are about the vow factor. Do they belong to the Lord? And this is why when you, go into, uh, when you go into Ephesians 5, this passage that most of us pastors get wrong. I know Chad doesn't get it wrong, and that's why I can, I can say it here. But a lot of pastors get this wrong. The one on love and submission, right? The one where um, Paul says, um, wives, submit to your husbands. And you know that that word submit in the original language is actually not in that verse. It's in the verse above it. The verse above it says what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the body of Christ, when you're looking for hunk of hunk of burning love in the body of Christ, your number one quality is this, that you're looking for. Are they submitted to Christ? Are they keeping their vow to him of faithfulness? And then secondly, are they submitted and faithful to the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? Outside of that, marry anyone you want. It'll all work out. But what if they have, Paul says, it'll, it'll work out. You got those two things going for you. Number one, they are committed and faithful to their walk with the Lord. And secondly, they are submitted to the, some of you don't believe me. Turn to Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter five. I just want to show you this. This will be fun. If you get nothing else out of the message today, you will go home and scare your neighbors with this text. Look at Ephesians chapter five. Now, out of all of Paul's teaching in Ephesians, okay, are you in chapter 5? Look at verse 21. That's the first time the word submit appears. How many verses has Paul written specifically to husbands and wives? 22 to 33. 11 or 12 verses. Longer passage to men, obviously. We need more teaching. You go to the book of Colossians. You turn to chapter 3. Out of all of Paul's teachings about the body, you find only two verses specifically given to husbands and wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. And those are interchangeable. Mutual submission and mutual self-sacrificing love. Why does Paul spend so little time on a relationship that is so important as marriage? 
It's because Paul has an assumption that we've married in the Lord and the people we've picked, number one, are submitted to Christ and number two, have learned submission in the body of Christ. They've learned sacrificial love in the body of Christ. So when a husband and wife hear the word submission, it's not the first time. They don't go, well, what in the world is submission? They go, Oh, okay, like I do for my brothers and sisters. Like I've been taught that Christ submitted. He, he laid down his life. That's what I'm supposed to do. When a husband hears about radical, self-sacrificing love, I'm, I should be willing to die for my wife in a heartbeat. That's not the first time the brothers and sisters have heard that. They've been listening to the Apostle John who says, if we really love the brothers, we will lay down our lives for them. And this is in the brother-sister relationship. Can you see what a difference it makes to marry someone? I don't care what color hair they have. I don't care what their racial background is. I don't care. Even some of their BC activities that we really worry about. Oh, you know, yeah, all of that stuff's important. Paul's saying what's really important, are they faithful to the Lord? And are they faithful to the brothers and the sisters out of which you've chosen in the Lord? Why? Write this down, men and women. If a spouse is faithful to the Lord and they're faithful to their brothers and sisters, they'll be faithful to you as a spouse. Imagine the difficulty of marrying someone who doesn't love the Lord and they've never been taught about submission. They've never been taught about unconditional love. They don't have a primary commitment to the Lord. They don't understand what marriage is about, that when marriage is at its hardest is when the Spirit of God is using those hard circumstances and prayer and the ministry of the Word and the body of Christ to chisel off the edges to make me more like Christ. And God's purpose is that for many of us, I know that there are always exceptions to this, but many of us need to stay in the furnace of our relationship because God is at work doing something incredible that will never take place when our marriages are easy. The consumer marriage. Society is about the wow factor. Spiritual marriage is about the vow factor. Look at uh, Ephesians. Um, See verse 21. Submit to one another. Paul spends, and I really encourage you to study this out. Go through the epistles. Paul spends very little specific time talking about husbands and wives. Because his assumption is that we are to take our cues of how family works from what? From our spiritual family. In fact, if you came to know the Lord later in life, being part of a vibrant, loving, uh, Christ-centered church is one of the best places for you to get reparented and refamilied. This is the best place to learn how family works. This is also why toxic churches often are really toxic to struggling marriages. Tim Keller is the pastor of a church of 6,000 people in New York. And his book that I mentioned before is actually based on like a seven or eight week sermon series on marriage. And someone once asked him, you know, Tim, how do you get away with doing that? I preach like two sermons a year on marriage. And, you know, our single adults are rolling their eyes and, you know, just, oh, you know, you got to talk about marriage again. I'm going to go visit church XYZ. Out of that church of 6,000 people, over half of them are single Christians who said to their pastor, 
Tim, do whatever you need to do to help the toxic marriages in our church because when they're not getting along, they bring their toxicity into the body of Christ and it really wreaks havoc. Go get them straightened out. We'll give you a year if you need it. Have you, have you ever thought about this? You, di- you didn't pay for this. And um, stand up just for a second. Are you guys married? Okay, stand up for a second. And you, you've never met me before, is that true? That's correct. Okay, um, I don't have anything up my sleeve. All right. I want to give you, one, turn toward each other for a second. I want to give you one practical thing that if you use this in your marriage, it would revolutionize your relationship. And it's this. When, when did you come to Christ? 1980. 1980. Did you guys both come at the same time? Yes. Oh, awesome. Okay. Were you guys married before? Yes. You were married before. Okay. Now, married before. Here's the new dynamic. Look in your husband's eyes. This is your brother in Christ who will spend eternity with you. And so when you think about what you say to him, how you relate to him, what you expect of him, he is going to give an account someday of how he's taking care of you, but he primarily belongs to the Lord God. And so he is blessed, he's chosen, he's anointed by the Spirit of God. When you look in the eyes of your wife, you're not just looking into the eyes of the woman that you love. You're looking into a daughter of the king of kings. You're looking into her eyes. She's chosen. She's beloved. So what you say to her, how you treat her, how you minister and sacrifice for her, what you are doing is you are loving her in this temporary relationship on behalf of the king of kings. Because someday, guess what? I know some people get really bent about this. Oh, there's no, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no, there's a hand wringing. Hey, just, just believe God. Okay. When the scripture says, eye hasn't seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God's prepared for those that love him, just, it's going to be better, okay? I can't tell you whether you've been able to hold hands in your golden mansion, all that kind of stuff. All I know is this. This is an eternal relationship that models for the unbelieving world the faithfulness of God to his people. In the Old Testament, it was the faithfulness of God to Israel. In the New Testament, it's the faithfulness of Christ to his church. And so this isn't an ordinary relationship. Does that make sense? This isn't an ordinary relationship. This is temporary. Their relationship as brother and sister and with all of you. And some of you actually are going to be happier than you are now in in heaven. You are. You're a Christian, you just haven't told your face about it, but it'll, it'll catch up, okay? Thank you, thank you. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? My spouse is primarily a daughter of the King of Kings with whom I will spend eternity. And so my words to her, the way I care for her, the way I sacrifice for her, is predicated on the fact that she has value that's way past my needs. And can you see how then marriage that's built just on the consumer model, that this is about me, will never be large enough to hold the Christian view of what marriage is supposed to be? Okay. How much time do I have? Am I done? I got five minutes? Well, we're doing communion and stuff, and I'm not sure how long that takes. Five? Five minutes. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about contract marriage real quick. Um, I'll do it down here. Contract marriage versus covenant marriage, okay? Contract marriage is what the society believes um, is fair. Christian version of this is an egalitarian marriage, 50-50. Um, 
And I know there's some people that view their marriage as egalitarian, and it's very good, it's very healthy, very biblical. Here's where it tends to go wrong. Egalitarian marriages, um, totally co-equal, which is a consistent biblical value. In Christ, you are totally co-equal by creation. You both bear the image of God. And the contract kind of thing of, hey, you know what? A contract means we're both signing up for stuff, right? We're both signing up to do some kind of participation in this relationship. Here's the downside. A contract marriage isn't a covenant marriage. Covenant marriage, according to biblical, uh, biblical teaching and biblical example, is this. Can I use you guys? Can you have fun? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> now there, come on, come on out here just for a second. I'm gonna, I'll burn a couple more than five minutes, but you'll, you'll get the point. Thank you. You, you guys might never come back, but, and, and I might never get invited back, so it'll, it'll work. Maybe we can go to church together someplace. Okay. In the traditional Christian view of covenant marriage, what do we emphasize? We emphasize that these two make what? An unconditional covenant with each other. That is only half the biblical picture. Covenant in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, all of the models of covenant are based on what are called Susantory treaties. The Susantory treaty model was often used between kings and lesser parties. When God says, I want you in covenant, here's what it is. It is, would you like to stand up on the thing? Would you like to play God? Absolutely. You, you, you look a little divine today, okay? So turn around, turn around. In the Susantory treaty model on which the, 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 um, the covenants in the scripture are based, God is party one of that covenant. And these are two equal uh, partners to party two. Does that make sense? So when I'm being unfaithful to my wife, I'm being unfaithful to God. It is locked into the covenant model. Here's the other thing that deeply changes how we should do marriage as a Christian. We should not only have vows before God, we should have vows with God. Because he holds the other end of the paper. He is the mortgagee. He is the bank owner. He's the other part of the party. And here's what it does to our concept of divorce. I just want to be really gracious. I know this is painful for some of you, but going forward, you'll need to understand. You'll never get in trouble when you read the scripture, speak the truth first, then give your opinion, and then worry about people's feelings. Most Christians, when they are faced with a divorce decision, never stop and think. They ask, is my spouse going to be okay with it? Can I get them to agree with it? And they never ask the other question, has God released me from the covenant because he holds the other end of the paper? Does that make sense? So a covenant marriage is reestablishing God as the mutual partner in the covenant, which also means he has a vested interest in strengthening you and encouraging you and protecting you and doing all the things that you think and know that you need in order to be faithful and to grow in your relationship. Those come from the Lord who has a vested interest in the success of your marriage. We oftentimes use God as just the fire inspector 
You know, when, when stuff is just burned, the whole house is burning down, well, we, we're gonna, we better go to church. We better get some help. And we have ignored the person who has a vested interest in using this human relationship to shape both of these hearts to be like Christ and to project to the world that there is a God who is faithful to very imperfect people. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll, let's talk later to find out what church we're going to. Um, sure. In fact, you can talk to him about it. <clears throat> we're going to make a transition, I think, into receiving the offering and, um, and then into the Lord's table. And, and while, we're, while you're doing that, while we're receiving the offering, I, I just want you to think uh, two things. Those of you who are married, number one, if I reject the consumer model of marriage, my spouse will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've stopped looking. My spouse will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've stopped comparing them to someone else. Does that make sense? If I embrace a covenant model of marriage, and you can do that now, even if you haven't done it before, I reestablish the fact that my second party is God himself and that my precious spouse, imperfect and as frustrating as they can be at times, is my brother or sister in the Lord. And that relationship actually supersedes the temporary marital relationship in terms of the way that I treat them and I value them. Does that make sense? May the Lord bless you as you think about his word, as we continue to worship, as we worship the Lord in giving our tithes and offerings. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says that he is the God of reconciliation. And if he has enough power to reconcile sinful people to himself, he certainly has enough power to help you and me and our marriages. And so my encouragement to you is if you're struggling like all of us do at times, let that need be confidentially known to, to the office. And um, specifically, we can help you get the best help available. There is always hope with God, always, always hope with God. And so if you want uh, to take just a minute to, to greet us, there's a pamphlet. You can learn a little bit more about the ministry to pray for us. We would just really appreciate that. Father, for all that you've done as singles, as marrieds, as brothers and sisters who are seeking to live to honor you in this life and looking forward to the life that is to come. We thank you for your presence here and teaching us and encouraging us through our worship, and through your word that you are faithful. And you are faithful in our salvation and you're faithful in our everyday walk. We pray that you might help us build common bridges of love and understanding to those who have not yet been introduced to your marvelous, marvelous saving grace. Give us those opportunities, especially, Father, as we come up on Maple Grove Days, redemptive conversations and opportunities to serve and love. We pray this in Christ's name.